Listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder, dismemberment, and the desecration of corpses. Some people may find the material offensive. Listener discretion is strongly suggested for children under 13. Being laid to rest. Cultures all around the world share similar notions of honoring and burying the dead. Generally, mourners prepare and clean the body, dress it in fine clothing or trappings, and grieve over it before finally putting them to rest. Some corpses are cremated, while others are buried deep within the earth, hopefully where they remain. Sometimes, however, that isn't the case. Since time immemorial, grave robbers, treasure hunters, and thieves alike have raided the crypts of the dead, searching for anything and sometimes anyone of value. This macabre practice hasn't just been reserved for the lowest of society, but some of history's leaders as well. For example, Charles II of England and the French Convention of 1793, among others, raided the graves of their opponents, destroying entire legacies. Yet for one man in history, the desecration of his body sent his remains on a strange journey for almost 300 years. That's 300 years without so-called rest. There are those who argue, though, that this lost soul deserved everything that was coming to him. Of course, there are those who also say the opposite. Regardless of your stance, this man went on an extraordinary, if not bizarre, journey after death. Or at least, his head did. Hi, I'm Molly. And I'm Richard. Welcome to Gone, the show where we search for everything missing. In each episode, we examine mysterious disappearances and the theories they spawned. From the Amber Room to Michael Rockefeller, Picasso paintings to the Etruscan language, the Roanoke Colony to the lost Russian cosmonauts. If it's gone, we're looking for it. If you want to listen to previous episodes, you can find them on your favorite podcast directory or on our website, parcast.com. While you're there, don't forget to subscribe and leave a five-star review. It seems simple, but it really helps the podcast. This week, we're going to look into the strange and macabre journey of one of Britain's most notorious and possibly infamous historical figures, Oliver Cromwell. To give a brief introduction, Oliver Cromwell was the leader of Britain's First Republic following a bloody civil war. After his death in 1658, King Charles II had Cromwell's corpse dug up, decapitated, and his head placed on a pike atop Westminster Abbey. So what makes this story so mysterious? Well, during a storm in the late 1700s, Oliver Cromwell's rotting head fell off the roof of Westminster Abbey. The head disappeared for almost 300 years before supposedly turning up in the 20th century. The questions are, was this really Oliver Cromwell's head? And if so, where had it been the last 300 years? We'll also look into the theories about what happened to his body and the rumors surrounding his ghoulish exhumation. Perhaps the head famously piked atop Westminster Abbey was never Oliver Cromwell's at all. 
But before we get into that, let's delve into the history of who Oliver Cromwell was. Where did he come from? What did he do? And why did Charles II want to dig up his body and sever his head? On April 25, 1599, Oliver Cromwell was born in Huntington, England, to Robert Cromwell and Elizabeth Stewart. Oliver would be their only surviving son in a family filled with daughters, making him heir to the family's modest fortune. As Cromwell grew up, he attended school at the Sydney Sussex College at Cambridge, a constituent college of the now-famous University of Cambridge. It was here that Oliver Cromwell began to move towards more conservative theology, as Sidney Sussex was driven by a strong Puritan ethos at the time. As a refresher, the Puritans were Reformed English Protestants who rose up in the 16th and 17th century. They emphasized more conservative or purer worship of God. It was because of this conservative doctrine that they spoke out against the Church of England and the English Reformation, who the Puritans believed weren't distancing themselves enough from the Roman Catholic Church. Puritans valued hard work and strict morality. And it was this ethos that informed Cromwell the rest of his life. Oliver left school and returned home after his father died in 1617. He then married Elizabeth Borscher in 1620. Together, the couple had nine children between 1621 and 1638. Cromwell also began his career as a parliamentarian in King Charles I's court. He represented his home county, Huntingdonshire, in 1628. Though it's suspected he only got his position because of his wife's family connection to powerful Puritan families. As Cromwell began his tenure in Parliament, he went through a sort of midlife crisis. Through the late 1620s into the 1630s, Cromwell sought unspecified treatment for emotional and physical problems. It's suspected he suffered from depression and was treated by the famous Swiss-born doctor, Theodore de Mayern. To make matters worse, Cromwell was forced down the societal ladder, losing much of his status and nobility. This was due to a dispute with the Huntington Privy Council over a new town charter. This resulted in him having to sell his land and move to St. Ives in England, which was considered lesser land. This was said to be the final straw that drove Cromwell to have a spiritual awakening. According to various letters, Cromwell grew radicalized in his Puritan faith. He spoke of how he was a chief of sinners before being saved by God. Much like his faith advocated, he grew to despise Catholicism and the Church of England along with its clergy. He believed England and its kingdoms were trapped in sin and needed to be rescued. It's even been hinted that Cromwell participated in underground conventicles or secret radical religious meetings. These were considered illegal at the time. This radicalized Cromwell turned quite a few heads and even made some enemies in Parliament. He often spoke out about the Church of England and its corruption. While many may have agreed with him, his outspoken nature often left him alienated by his peers. The situation, however, wasn't just tense because of Cromwell's stance on religion. Much of the Parliament at the time was annoyed with the current king, Charles I. King Charles I was not a popular king. 
He had imposed numerous taxes and loans upon his subjects after a series of unpopular wars with Spain and France. He was also known for not working well with his parliament, often disbanding it whenever motions didn't go his way. These failed meetings and growing tensions forced both King Charles I and Parliament to slowly build forces against one another. Pretty soon, two factions arose. The Royalists, who were loyal to the king and monarchy, and the Parliamentarians, those who sought to build a republic free from the yoke of monarchy. Both sides recruited armies, and in January of 1642, Charles personally invaded Parliament with armed guards to try and arrest members of Parliament. He was driven away, and thus the English Civil Wars began. As the first Civil War raged, Cromwell found himself on the side of the Parliamentarians. Though he had no prior military experience, he opted to recruit troops for cavalry soldiers and also began to train as one. Cromwell proved himself a capable soldier through a series of battles. It was thanks to these battles that Cromwell was eventually put in charge of training the Parliamentarian's army. By 1645, Cromwell had won decisive conflicts at Naseby and Langport, and by May 1646, King Charles was forced to surrender, ending the First English Civil War. From 1646 to 1648, there was a lull in combat, but continued turmoil in politics. Meanwhile, King Charles rallied his forces and once again tried to take back his throne by force in 1648. Cue the Second English Civil War. This war, however, was short-lived, lasting only about a year. Cromwell led his forces on a ferocious campaign across England, striking down any royalist contingents. He executed his enemies with extreme prejudice, all while claiming to be God's instrument. Cromwell had used religion to justify his actions before, but not on this scale. He wrote to allies asking them to meditate on various psalms. It seemed no matter what happened, whether Cromwell lost or won, God was dictating the outcome. Regardless of divine intervention, the Second Civil War came to a close in December 1648. Pretty soon, much of the old parliament was removed. Only those who supported the new model army and its senior officers, known as grandees, remained. This new parliament was known as the Rump. The Rump's first order of business was the execution of Charles I. With 59 signatures, Cromwell's being the second, the execution warrant of the king was brought forth, and on January 30, 1649, King Charles I was executed. This sparked an uproar across the kingdom, especially in Ireland and Scotland. Cromwell's forces mobilized and engaged in a series of massacres across Ireland and Scotland. While this was going on, the rump struggled. Cromwell grew frustrated with his new government's ineffectual leadership, so he used armed soldiers to disarm and remove the rump parliament on April 20, 1653. In their place, Cromwell installed a group of like-minded religious individuals. This became known as the Bare Bones Parliament. The Bare Bones Parliament didn't last long either. By the end of 1653, 
A new constitution was drafted, and Oliver Cromwell was named Lord Protector of the Land for Life. He was king in everything but title. From 1653 to 1658, Cromwell ruled, hoping to push for more serious social and religious reform. Despite his parliament hoping for continued political reform, allowing for a better distribution of power, Cromwell insisted on a one-man government and a parliament. More than that, he believed in rule by God and not by the people. True to his Puritan background, he continually pushed for more conservative laws, such as his Blue Laws, which outlawed blasphemy, cursing, drunkenness, and adultery. Despite his best intentions, Cromwell was accused of being a hypocrite and tyrant, no better than the king most had worked hard to depose. To add insult to injury, he lived in the monarchy's palaces, he dressed like them, and he was referred to as Your Highness. Lucky for the UK, Cromwell's health had been failing him since his campaigns in Ireland. He was suffering from kidney failure due in part to a urinary infection known as the stone. He also had malaria. On September 3, 1658, Oliver Cromwell passed away at age 59. A royal funeral was held, and Cromwell's body was kept at Somerset House to be prepared for burial. He was embalmed and shrouded, then placed in a magnificent wooden coffin covered in royal symbols. His funeral was held on November 23, 1658, to allow time for embalming and the lavish setup. He was given an extravagant coffin, and a huge statue effigy was made in his honor. He was finally buried not soon after. Yet Cromwell's corpse found no peace. We'll return to our story in just a moment from the Parcast Network. And now, back to Gone. Now that we've delved into who Oliver Cromwell was, let's dig into his postmortem adventure, starting with what happened to his body in 1658. After Oliver Cromwell's death, rule of the land fell to his son Richard Cromwell. Richard, however, proved ineffectual. Ruling for only a year, from 1658 to 1659, Richard lacked much of his father's drive. By May of 1659, Richard resigned from office. That's when Charles I's son, Charles II, returned home. Charles II had fled England shortly after his father's execution. Now, with the help of the governor of Scotland, George Monk, Charles reclaimed his birthright and returned home. On May 29, 1659, Charles II was crowned king. Yet, before Charles II could assume the role of lenient king, he had to clean house. Though he spared most of Cromwell's supporters, including his son Richard, Charles II executed some 50 people on the grounds of regicide. He also demanded something a little extra. The bodies of Oliver Cromwell and his compatriots. Here's where it gets interesting. During Charles II's attempt to clean house, he ordered all those involved in his father's demise be brought forth for a posthumous execution. In January of 1661, Oliver Cromwell's grave was raided by royalists searching for his corpse. By this point, he had been buried for about three years. Cromwell had been buried within Westminster Abbey near the Henry VII Lady Chapel. 
His corpse had purportedly been hidden within a wall of the middle aisle of the church. Unfortunately, it was found and exhumed. Along with the bodies of John Bradshaw and Henry Ireton, Cromwell's body was taken to the Red Lion Inn in Hoban on January 28, 1661. Two days later, on January 30, 1661, Cromwell and his dead compatriots were dragged through the streets in an unwieldy sledge cart with open coffins displaying their grotesque, decomposing bodies. This was an especially momentous occasion for the royalists as it marked the anniversary of Charles I's death. People threw food and garbage at the corpses, along with obscenities. The three bodies were then taken to the gallows of London, where they were hung for all the public to see. Their bodies were left for hours to rot in the sun, until around four o'clock in the afternoon, after which they were cut down. The desecration was far from over. All three bodies were then dismembered at the joints and decapitated. Their heads were placed on pikes and their bodies tossed into a mass grave in the town of Tyburn. The heads were placed atop Westminster Abbey. Charles II ordered that Cromwell's head always remain up there, untouched, as a reminder to those who would dare oppose the monarch. How gruesome. To think after death, your body dragged through the mud and muck, then put on display, only to be cut apart and tossed aside. Yes, it was truly horrific. This practice of decapitation and piking was a long-practiced tradition. Heads of the deceased have long been placed on the tops of castles and other major monuments. It was meant as a scare tactic, to keep people in line while also displaying power and conquest. In this case, it was a visible marker of King Charles II's return to the throne and the destruction of Cromwell's Republic. Believe it or not, the London Bridge was one of the main sites used to place severed heads. Some notable people whose heads were piked include Simon Fraser, Thomas More, and John Murphy. However, Oliver Cromwell's head is the only one that ever notably disappeared. Assuming it was Cromwell's head. As this went on, rumors began to circulate that the head and body displayed in London weren't actually Oliver Cromwell's. There are multiple theories that Cromwell's body was switched out with someone else's. The first theory is that Cromwell had his body switched out with that of King Charles I. This theory comes from one of King Charles II's parliamentary administrators, Samuel Pepys. Pepys wrote a story claiming that Cromwell had exhumed several old tombs of Britain's monarchy, moving their corpses to destinations unknown. It is because of this rumor that Pepys suspected that Cromwell's supporters switched out his corpse with Charles I. Since he occupied the role of the monarchy in everything but name, Oliver Cromwell would have had access to all the royal tombs. So he could have easily moved King Charles I's corpse. Or, after Oliver Cromwell's death, his son Richard, who succeeded him, could have accessed Charles I's corpse. Richard and his supporters, knowing Richard couldn't rule like his father, may have swapped the bodies preemptively as a way to protect Oliver Cromwell's legacy. Just one problem. There is no evidence to support this claim. 
Pepys constructed the theory out of rumors and hearsay in the late 1600s. And though popular at the time, it was later disproven. In 1813, King George III decided to build a mausoleum at Windsor Castle. While digging, workers disturbed Charles I's coffin and opened it. Inside was Charles I's bearded corpse. Besides having his name etched into his coffin, the skull purportedly matched various portraits and coins of the former king. The biggest giveaway, however, was in the corpse's neck, which showed signs of decapitation. Charles had been executed by beheading, and his head was later sewn back onto his body. If Cromwell's body had been switched with it prior to being beheaded, then there shouldn't have been any sign of decapitation. Cromwell died of natural causes, so if the body in Charles I's grave was Cromwell, there would be no sign of beheading. And when exhuming Charles I, they found his tomb, along with his coffin, undisturbed. So the theory of switching his body out with King Charles I is pretty much out the window. Absolutely. But there are more theories to explore. Another theory that was tossed around at the time was that Cromwell's body was secretly buried near the Red Lion Inn in Hoban. The story goes that Cromwell's body was dug up at Westminster and taken to the Red Lion on January 28, 1661. There, his family and supporters switched Cromwell's body with another body and secretly buried Cromwell's remains beneath the obelisk in Red Lion Square. This idea was also supported by Professor H.F. McMaines, who wrote the book, The Death of Oliver Cromwell. But sadly, no one could offer physical proof of this. The Red Lion is still active to this day and quite modernized. If there was a body dug up near there, someone would have reported it. There's no indication of such an event unfolding. So I'm afraid this theory is dead in the water as well. Many more theories persist on Cromwell's body being switched out or buried elsewhere. Some of these suggested locations include St. Nicholas's Church, Chiswick, St. Andrews, Northborough, Newburgh Priory, and even a burial on the River Thames. But again, the only evidence to support these claims rests on hearsay. That being said, there are two more theories that are particularly interesting. The first is that Cromwell wasn't buried at Westminster Abbey, but at the site of his greatest military victory, the field at Naseby, where Cromwell won a decisive battle in 1645 during the first part of the English Civil War. On his deathbed in 1658, Cromwell supposedly ordered his men to secretly bury him on the hill. This way his corpse could avoid being defiled by political opponents. While digging up the graves of one's enemies wasn't common, it is more than likely Cromwell saw enemy soldiers executed and their heads piked. This might have instilled a fear in him. According to the theory, Cromwell's soldiers did as they were told, and in the cover of darkness reburied their leader in Naseby Field and plowed over it to disguise any sign of the right. Thus, when Charles II's men dug up Cromwell's official grave in Westminster Abbey, they found an unnamed corpse posing as Cromwell. So what makes this story more plausible than the others? Well, the first piece of evidence comes from Harlan Miscellany, who supposedly published a manuscript drawn up by the son of one of Cromwell's allies, 
John Barkstead. In it, Cromwell's last request was to be buried at Naseby. This story was further supported by Oliver Cromwell's last descendant, also named Oliver Cromwell. He claimed that his mother had told him a similar story that had been passed down from Cromwell's servant who assisted in the burial. I think it's possible, but again, most of the evidence is circumstantial. Even this so-called manuscript was lost to time, so we can't really confirm it. It's more probable than the last few theories, but that's not really saying much. There's one more popular theory about what really happened to Oliver Cromwell's body. In this theory, the Royalists did manage to find Cromwell's real body in January 1661 and decapitate it. Afterwards, Cromwell's head was carted away to be put on a pike. However, his daughter Mary, the Countess of Falkenberg, pleaded with the executioner not to toss her father's remains in a pit at Tyburn. The executioner agreed and helped Mary smuggle the remains to her husband's house in Newburgh Priory at Coxwold. There, his remains, minus his head, were sealed away in a secret tomb that has remained shut even to this day. This tomb is still undisturbed, despite several attempts by outsiders, including other kings and queens like Edward VII. Yet, because it's undisturbed, no one has ever truly confirmed what's inside. While I think this story might be the most plausible out of all, without actually going into the tomb, we can't say for sure. With that, it seems most likely that it was Oliver Cromwell's real head that was piked atop Westminster Abbey. There are more accounts and records that collaborate the idea Cromwell's body was the genuine article. So it's more than likely Cromwell's remains are buried either in the sealed tomb in Coxwold or an unmarked grave in Tyburn. However, it's a little suspicious that no one's been allowed to verify the grave at Coxwold. That leads us to think Cromwell's body is buried somewhere in Tyburn. But even if we never know for sure what happened to Cromwell's body, there's still the matter of his head. Assuming the head that was piked was Cromwell's, was it really found? And if so, how did it stay missing for so long? Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. And now, back to Gone. Let's dive into the theory that Oliver Cromwell's head took a bizarre 300-year journey before being reburied. In 1661, Oliver Cromwell had been dug up and his remains showcased to the world as a warning. His body tossed into a mass grave and his head placed on a pike. It's a gruesome tale, to say the least. For 25 years, Oliver Cromwell's head stood grotesque and decayed atop a pike on Westminster Abbey. During that time, the head was only removed once for roof maintenance before immediately being placed back in its spot. It was at Charles II's behest that the head remain unmoved, a symbol for Cromwellian and Republic sympathizers that the crown was back in charge. What follows is a story put together from various accounts of one man's head's 300-year journey. But was the head found 300 years later really Cromwell's, or perhaps was it someone else's? Either way, it all began with a storm. Sometime between 1685 and 1689, a terrible storm hit Westminster. 
As rain and thunder pelted the worn building, Cromwell's pike started to give. The tip of the pike with Cromwell's head snapped off and tumbled away. Following the realization that Cromwell's head was missing from its perch, a massive hunt ensued. Posters and pamphlets were issued with the promise of reward, yet nothing ever turned up. Cromwell's head was lost. Or was it? While it's unclear exactly what happened, anecdotal evidence suggests that the head was in fact found, specifically by a guard at Westminster. Though his name is lost to time, it is said that this unnamed guard took the head back to his home. Remember, his head was embalmed, so the flesh would have been more mummified than decayed. Not that that makes the guard taking the head any less disturbing. Rumor had it, the guard who found Cromwell's head was a Secret Republic sympathizer and Cromwell fan. The guard feared the head would fall back into the hands of the crown and put back on display. So he hid the head in his chimney, where it remained until the year 1710. That's macabre. Why not take the head to Cromwell's descendants, or even his daughter with her secret tomb? Excellent questions. Keep in mind, this is more anecdotal than proven. Could be he didn't know about the secret tomb, or was just afraid he'd get in trouble for having it. We can't even be sure that this was Cromwell's head that fell off Westminster Abbey. It could have belonged to either of the two men who were beheaded and piked with Cromwell, Ireton and Bradshaw. Though there's no evidence to account for that. At the time, heads were still being piked, but none had recently been added or removed from Westminster Abbey. So while we can't say for sure this head is Cromwell's, we do know where the head went next. By the turn of the 18th century, the old guard was dying. He brought his daughter to his deathbed and confessed that he had Oliver Cromwell's head hidden in a nook in their chimney. He passed the head on to her before finally passing away. Instead of keeping it, she sold it to a man named Claudius Dupuis. Dupuis was a Swiss-French collector of rare curiosities and owned a private museum in London. It was internationally renowned and a popular tourism spot. Dupuis displayed the head starting in his House of Oddities around 1710. Many famous travelers, including Zacharias Conrad von Uffenbach, known for his world travels and journals, described the head at Dupuis' museum. When he spoke to Dupuis about the head, Dupuis claimed he could sell Cromwell's head for 60 guineas, or the equivalent to 5,000 pounds today. This astounded Uffenbach, who couldn't fathom why anyone would want a severed head. Yet Dupuis never sold the head and kept it with him until his death in 1738. Afterwards, the head once again changed hands. This time, the head fell into the hands of a failed comic actor, Samuel Russell. He purchased the head from the late estate of Dupuis sometime in the 1740s. Russell claimed to be a descendant, citing how the Cromwells had intermarried with the Russell family a few generations ago. For him, Cromwell's head was a family relic. Despite the bold claim, Russell treated the head more like a prop than sacred heirloom. Russell would take the head to parties and pass it around. Over time, the head was damaged further, receiving additional fractures and cracks and losing teeth. Some way to treat your ancestor. I still can't believe he did that with a real human skull. 
While Russell was using Cromwell as a tool for bacchanalia, a man named James Cox heard about the skull and sought to purchase it. Russell refused to part with the skull. Cox persisted. As time went on, Russell fell deep in debt. Eventually, he tried to pawn the skull off to Sidney Sussex, Cromwell's old alma mater. The school refused, not believing the head's authenticity. With nowhere else to turn, Russell finally sold the head to James Cox. Cox was a renowned goldsmith, toy man, and clockworker of the time. He too owned a museum, but it had closed down by the time he got hold of the skull. Many historians who followed Cromwell's head, like Jonathan Fitzgibbons, who wrote the book Cromwell's Head, believe Cox simply wanted the head to sell it off at a higher price. And Cox did sell it. So who got the head next, you ask? Well, a trio of brothers known only as the Hughes purchased the head in 1799 for 230 pounds. Like Dupuis before them, they too were curators of private collections. The brothers prided themselves on acquiring artifacts related to Cromwell. The head was going to be their magnum opus. With it, they planned to open a big exhibition. The Hughes brothers handed out flyers and put up posters all across London for their Bond Street exhibition. But most people believed the head was a fake. The brothers couldn't truly verify if the head was Cromwell's or not. When they pressed former owner James Cox about the matter, he was elusive giving only a few details about Russell. With no credible evidence to back up the head, the exhibition failed. The head fell back into obscurity with one of the Hughes daughters keeping it safe. Every now and then, however, people would ask to see the head, and she'd gladly show them. These people included William Bullock and Sir Joseph Banks, famous naturalists and scientists of the time. As the years went on, the Hughes daughter finally was tired of carrying the severed head. With no takers from museums, she finally sold it to Josiah Henry Wilkinson in 1815. The head remained in the Wilkinson family's possession for more than 140 years. Pretty soon, the head took on a new name, the Wilkinson head. During that time, the authenticity of the head was called into question. The first was in 1845, when writer and historian of the time, Thomas Carlyle, called the head a hoax. Carlyle had never actually seen the head, however, and passed judgment entirely upon a friend's first-hand account. But by this point, few people cared enough about the head. In fact, most assumed the head was probably a fake. Can't say I blame them. There's really no hard evidence to say otherwise. What do you think? I agree. We really have nothing concrete to go on at this point. But things did change for the skull in 1875, when another contender rose up to challenge the authenticity of Cromwell's head. This skull was called the Ashmolean skull. The name Ashmolean comes from the museum where the skull was housed, the Ashmolean Museum of Oxford. Like the skull owned by Wilkinson, it had a pike through its head leading many to believe it was really Cromwell's. At first, the Ashmolean head was declared the genuine article. Yet as competition between the two heads grew, demand to check the authenticity of Wilkinson's head did also. So, in 1875, famed zoologist and physician George Rolleston examined both skulls. To his surprise, 
he found that Wilkinson's head was not only authentic, but even closer to the description of Cromwell's head than the Ashmolean skull. It boiled down to how the head was piked. According to historical accounts, Cromwell's head was piked from the bottom to top. The Ashmolean head had been stabbed starting from the top. Thus, the Ashmolean head couldn't be Cromwell's. But while Wilkinson's head was piked from bottom to top, that didn't make it Cromwell's. Like many skeptics of the time, Rolleston needed hard evidence. And fortunately, no one had any clear answers other than hearsay and a few documents. Nothing that truly verified whether the skull was Cromwell's. So the skull went back into obscurity until eugenicist Carl Pearson and anthropologist Jeffrey Morant examined the skull in 1935. In their book, The Portraiture of Oliver Cromwell with Special Reference to the Wilkinson Head, they observed that the skull had gone through an embalming process very similar to what Cromwell's corpse would have gone through. They also noted that the head was of a man around the age of 60 who had been decapitated with an axe, which was both the age Cromwell was when he died and how his head was severed after death. Pretty compelling evidence. But like you said earlier, couldn't the head have been any other famous persons? True. Many people were piked at the time, but few were embalmed, and that seems to be the key here. Later, during the 1950s, the head underwent an X-ray examination. While they couldn't give a concrete yes, the exam supported much of Morant and Pearson's observations. For all intents and purposes, this was Oliver Cromwell's head. By 1960, the current owner of the Wilkinson head, Horace Wilkinson, decided it was time to lay the head to rest. Working with the Sydney Sussex College, Horace Wilkinson had the Wilkinson head buried in secret near the anti-chapel on March 25, 1960. The burial was witnessed by a few key college representatives and descendants of Oliver Cromwell. Two years later, in 1962, they announced the burial publicly. They even erected a plaque near the burial site to commemorate the final resting place of Oliver Cromwell. Thus ended the saga of the Wilkinson head. Is the Wilkinson head really Oliver Cromwell's? Or did it belong to King Charles I? Or is it the head of an unknown man? Is Cromwell's real head buried at Naseby, the site of his greatest military victory? Or was it buried at the Red Lion Inn? We can't know for sure, but given all the evidence presented, it's more than likely that the skull buried at Sydney Sussex, a.k.a. the Wilkinson head, is indeed Oliver Cromwell's head. Agreed. The estimated age, the way it was piked, and evidence of embalmment all point to the Wilkinson head being Cromwell's. All other theories, though entertaining, don't provide any real evidence. Whether the head buried was Oliver Cromwell's or not, perhaps now the head can finally find some peace, as opposed to traveling Britain in pieces. That's probably why those at Sydney, Sussex haven't revealed the exact location of the burial site. They don't want to see the head go on another centuries-long odyssey. Exactly. Oliver Cromwell can rest easy, knowing his supposed remains have finally been put to rest. 
Thanks for tuning in to Gone. If you like the show, you can subscribe for more episodes on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or your favorite podcast directory. While you're there, we'd really appreciate a five-star review. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. New episodes release every other Monday. You can tell us your theories on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast, on Twitter at Parcast Network, or at Parcast.com. Just because it's gone doesn't mean it can't be found. Gone was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Ron Shapiro, with production assistance by Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Gone is written by Michael Pindis and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner.